Makers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults. And I'm Stephen Mather. I'm an organisational psychologist. Um, I was a member of a high control group or cult. Um, I'm also Celine's dad. Uh, welcome to Cult Hackers, everybody. Today we've got a really interesting guest. We have um, a fellow ex Jehovah's Witness. Welcome to the show, Carmel Michael. Thank you so much, Stephen and Celine, for having me and for letting me come in here and share some stories and experiences and talk about some issues that I really care about and I think some other folks who are listening will too. Oh, you're more more than welcome on the show. So you're a very interesting person. You do a lot of things. You've you're a filmmaker, you're a musician, um, you write. And all of this, or some of this, can be found through your website. So, of course, we'll put a link to that on our show notes. But maybe you could introduce yourself to our listeners, please, Carmel. Absolutely. So, yeah, as you said, I was born and raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses in a very small rural part of Canada. Um, A lot of things in my life changed uh, around the age of 15 when my family ended up moving to the States where my dad was from. And a lot of my sort of experiences that I speak about in my film sort of happen after that. Um, And really all the things that you spoke about around the music and the writing and um, beginning to be a filmmaker all happen after I left Jehovah's Witnesses. And so there's many, I often feel like I've had many lives because of the restrictions of my childhood and some other experiences I had in my young adult life. And I've really only come into sort of what I do fully in the last few years. And that's been like a very, very interesting experience, Um, very shaped by my childhood as a witness and very shaped by the work I'm doing now to sort of uncover what that was all about. So when when you tell your story, where where do you normally start? I, I tend to start from my childhood. That's such a good question. I think that none of our lives, when we're looking back at them, feel linear to us. But I think in the context of telling the story of my life as a Jehovah's Witness, it's really important to tell it as something I was born into. I think that folks who are born into the religion where their parents are that have a unique experience compared to folks who choose it themselves, maybe as an adult or come in later in life. And not that there's any hierarchy in that experience, but I do think that there is a specific experience of being born into a religion that is high control in the way that it monitors and um, defines your behavior and your morals, but also in that it gives you this entire worldview that shapes everything you look at in the world Mm -hmm. and also shapes your possibilities. So in my case, it shaped what was possible for me as far as getting an education, or I should say not getting a higher education. Um, And it shaped the way I viewed myself as a person in society, specifically a woman. So I do like to start sort of at the beginning because I think that it's harder to understand how my 20-year-old self went through my experience of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, without looking back at the framework and the system I was born into. So I think we can maybe start a little bit at the beginning. Yeah. Like you, I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. I was third generation. You know, we have talked quite a lot on on this podcast about the different experiences. Obviously, everybody's experience is going to be different, but the experience of a man compared to a woman or a boy compared to a girl, um, I know that's an area that you're very interested and concerned about. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. What's it like growing up as a young girl in Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, what's interesting is I... I don't know if I'm a first or a second generation witness. My parents became witnesses around the age of 25-ish together. 
And um, very surprisingly, my dad's sister, who lived away in another country at the time, also at that same time became witness. <laughs> and I think it was during that early to mid-70s where there was a huge push in evangelizing because witnesses believed the end was coming in 1975. And by a coincidence, they both got contacted by witnesses and they both came in to the truth together. And so even though none of the other extended family were witnesses, there was actually more of it around me than just my immediate family, which is kind mm -hmm. of interesting. Um, my dad actually, while I was growing up, he was an elder, which is one of the sort of male leadership structure. I think, Stephen, you might have also been that, if I remember your story. Um, I, I never made it to the dizzy heights of um, of elder, <laughs> which I'm very proud to say. Um, but um, yeah, I... I Obviously, my uh, lots in my family were elders, right. so it was. Uh, I, I understand the role quite well, but yeah, I, I didn't actually become an elder. Yeah. You're in a very spiritual family. What's interesting about the yes. context I grew up in is my parents were first. They were the traditional hippies of the early '70s. They <laughs> left somewhat like affluent upbringings in urban centers, met each other, and moved back to the land, and thought of themselves as people who were rebels from society and wanted something different. And it just happened that while they were searching for that something different, the witnesses walked up their long farm driveway. And for many reasons that I think about a lot, I think it, it appealed to them at that time. What I don't know that they realized is that then when they had kids, this would be it for them. And so as a little kid growing up, um, I had quite an idyllic childhood, to be honest. I grew up on a little farm. It was a big family. I, there's four kids in my family. We, um, you know, had all homegrown food and like we're very healthy and well taken care of. But our whole life centered around a very small congregation of witnesses at the Kingdom Hall, which was like a half hour drive from where I grew up. Um, I couldn't have friends in school, although I had friends while I was at school. I did go to regular school, but you didn't hang out with them afterwards. You only associated with the few other kids that were in that kingdom hall. So I grew up around with a very small, tight-knit group. And one of the first experiences I remember that signaled to me that being a girl was different experience than my brothers were having. Um, I was just 11, almost 12 years old, and... I had just gone to visit my grandmother who lived in Montreal, not witnesses. They were kind of a window into a whole other world that I always kind of brewed in my mind. And she had bought me this new outfit. It was like a big deal for 11 year old girl. <laughs> and even then I was like, not someone who like wore trendy clothes. I was such a nerd. Um, but I went to the kingdom hall on this day and an elder, I was feeling like very dapper and very proud. Um, and an elder pulled me aside, um, and pulled me, a, it was a very small kingdom hall. So it was just like afterwards, pulled me to the front row, sat me down, sat right next to me and said, you really have to be aware of how you're dressing because you are appearing worldly and a girl has to be modest and started reading me some scriptures about mm. this. He hadn't spoken to either of my parents before doing this. Right. So I'm just basically a kid who a stranger man is talking to about my dress. Obviously, how, how old were you at this point, Carmel? I was like 11. Um, oh. And the funny thing is I actually have a picture of this outfit, right? Because I was so proud of it. My grandmother like took a picture before I came home. It's I'm covered head to toe, like similar to today, actually. Like black, I wear a lot of black. And I still like in my logical brain, you know, I'm like, what could possibly be wrong with this? Like it wasn't at all immodest. 
And I, that has in, been indelibly marked in my mind as one of the first times that I realized that I was being monitored differently. I think all witnesses are monitored for their behavior, their dress, their speech, what they do, but in a very specific way if you're a girl. So that's one of those first early memories of like, mm. oh, I have a place that I need to fill and I have a role I need to play and I have to be careful. I'm being watched. Wow. That did, did he explain to you what he found offensive about your dress? It's that I, I, it was that I was very proud of it. Like he could tell that I was like, felt good. And several people had come up and been like, Ooh, I like your new outfit. And so it was mostly that. And I, I think that's like such a fascinating thing now as a much grown up adult, I can look back on. And to me, that's one of the earliest patterns that I saw that relates to how an abusive intimate relationship works Mm -hmm. because I had all kinds of experiences around um, my partner at the time policing the clothes that I wore Mm -hmm. and impugning motives to what I was wearing that seemed illogical to me and it's just such a kind of like fit for those two experiences so I was kind of primed to experience that from an early age and to think of it as kind of normal. And almost like it's doing you a favor or a kindness which is the additional messed up yeah yeah I mean so much of it is framed around love and protection right Mm. so the all-male leadership are talked about spoken of as shepherds which means that the rest of the congregation are sheep and it's their job to protect them from the wolves right the Mm. very common metaphor and so every kind of counsel or discipline within that organization is always framed in that way and I think when you're a little kid and you grew up around that you do think of it that way. You think that people are, this is your community. You have no reason not to love and trust these people, right? It's your whole world. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's conditioning you to accept that type of counsel as they would, um, describe it. Um, so that a, a quite a famous example of that is, um, an experience as we used to call them, um, of a, um, an individual that this was in the watchtower. This was an example of what a good brother this was. Um, he'd, um, he'd received some counsel from one of the elders about something that he'd supposedly done. Um, and actually it, he hadn't done it. So he knew he wasn't guilty of this thing that he'd just been counseled about. And another brother who overheard this conversation went up to him and said, um, but you know, it wasn't you and you, you're not, uh, you're not the person it, it, that's unfair and he said to him well he said I know it wasn't me and uh, I didn't do anything wrong but it was good counsel so I thought that I would take it now um, who knows whether this is made up um, I suspect it is but um, it was told us as a as an example of the way that you should really always take counsel even if you think it's unfair or unjust but it is a way of conditioning us to accept whatever we're told just be obedient yeah, I think that the the some of the positive, you know, Christian traits that a lot of people would know, like humility and things like mm-hmm. that, they can really be conflated in these higher control yeah. spaces where they become more than that. They really become submission, right? Which is mm-hmm. a very different thing. Um, and you know, I can speak about this now. This is you know uh, almost twenty years since I've been an active witness. Fifteen years. Um, because I have read a thousand books since then, and I've been to university, and I have a whole new language of understanding what was happening. But when I was experiencing the domestic violence, 
I did not have any of that language or knowledge or worldview to complement what I instinctually knew was wrong, but also because I had had a lifetime of being taught just overall, man or woman, that you're kind of sinful, right? Like that's what you are. And you're constantly in need of correction and monitoring. Also that God is constantly watching you, right? Mm -hmm. As a little kid, that translates into a lot of fear about the coming Armageddon and always be good because God's always watching even when your parents or the elders aren't. And as an adult, that becomes a form of kind of self-policing, right? And so it gets very complicated when you have this sort of internalized idea of your own value as being a bit shaky anyway. And then you have an intimate partner who might be telling you all kinds of things that are destroying that inner anchor as well. Mm. And then you have the third structure, which is an elder body or an organization that's enforcing those ideas. But the most powerful one is really that idea you're taught as a kid about God. Because I, when I look back at some of the things I was writing, letters I sent to my partner during tumultuous times, a lot of what I talk about is my great fear of displeasing God mm-hmm. and wanting to not put him in a position where he would displease God. And so my responsibility to stay in that marriage, despite it being very dangerous, had much to do with like that whole layer, but all the way up to the idea of God, right? That's a lot to say in one sentence, but it really is that intense when you're living in that world. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Celine, have you got any questions you want to ask Carmel at this point? Yeah, well, it's kind of because obviously you'll both have, um, before you get married, um, you've both had experience of, you know, going through that whole as I guess I think witnesses call it courtship don't they which sounds quite old-fashioned but I've heard it referred to that as a lot um and I know that something that dad you said previously that I think makes you feel a bit now is but you were looking for a spiritual wife and that sort of thing I don't know if like Mm. from the female perspective is there like a bit of phraseology you were you were looking for a spiritual husband or you know what is it that whole that whole world Um, definitely (laughs) they actually refer to it as like your spiritual head Because in witness world, they really do very openly believe in the Christian headship principle, which is that the male members of the congregation and the family are really the ones with ultimate authority, decision making and responsibility. Um, One of the, you know, many arguments I've had with my witness family is around that sort of double edged sword of the headship idea where many folks say, but isn't it wonderful that God has put this system in place where a family will always be taken care of? And it's really a man's responsibility to do that, right? Um, And of course, the dark side of that is that it really leaves sort of equity and women's rights up to chance that yes, there are probably many happy and healthy marriages within that organization. I'm sure there are, but it's still within the system that allows for what happened to me to really perpetuate and become very dangerous. So the idea of marriage is so guarded and important because A, you can't get divorced just for any reason. And B, this whole concept of the spiritual head is that they have a lot of power in life. And so a woman should choose wisely who they're going to be with. But here's an interesting problem with that. (laughs) You also have very common, very young marriage among witnesses mm-hmm. because premarital sex is considered one of the big, big sins. And you're going to be looking at like partnering up and starting a family, like a kind of traditional vibe, right? Mm-hmm. So 
when you pair together very young people in a high pressure situation where as a teenager, the whole time, your all your behavior is monitored. I mean, mm-hmm. every friend I had as a teenage girl had some interaction where they were punished by elders for doing pretty normal teenage stuff, making out with someone, trying something, maybe drinking, mm-hmm. like, like stuff that is just kind of part of life. You can't do as a young Christian witness kid. So there's pressure around every part of it. And the courtship is supposed to be very monitored. You don't, you can't go on dates alone. It's always in a group or with a chaperone. Um, so you have limited access to finding out who this person really is. It's very performative. As soon as it's announced that you are maybe like hanging out with this person, everyone in the congregation knows. Mm-hmm. And if you sit next to them, it's like everyone whispers. Um, I remember I was engaged to the person I was about to be married to. We were in the kingdom hall. And we were standing up for the final prayer and he had his arm around me during the prayer. And someone turned around and was like, you better wait till you're married for that kind of behavior. So, I mean, not everyone is that extreme, but that is, that's the kind of, it's in the air. It's the atmosphere. And one other part of getting married as a witness is there is a, um, there's kind of a study period. I'm not sure if you experienced this as well, Stephen, but we actually studied for a few months with the elder who was going to marry us, a book about family and how husbands and wives should be based on the Bible. And we had to like answer questions and go once a week to the elder's house and have these study periods together. And they refer to marriage as a threefold cord. So mm. it's, it's me, it's my partner and it's God. And we're in it together and that's why it's very hard to break because it's this threefold cord. So yeah, there's it's it's certainly not like this fun romantic thing. Although of course <laughs> we're humans and there was some fun romantic things, but yeah. most of those would have been like we probably shouldn't have been doing that. And there was a lot of pressure around it, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, as uh, as soon as you start going out with somebody or as you said still in courting and, and it it was still a word that was used I, I don't know if it still is but um um you know you, you're supposed to be on a road to to getting married so this is not something you just do you know off the top of your head or frivolously um this is something that is you know you're you're embarking upon a, a road that will lead to marriage unless there's Basically, unless one of you screws up, you know, um, one or the other has to be at fault. Um, otherwise, you're expected to uh, to get married. And that, as you say, that's a tremendous amount of pressure, actually, on very yeah. young people. On, like, young, young people. I mean, I was 21 yeah. when I got married. Yeah. Um, which, it's funny, it was the same age that my own my mother got married to my dad, but in a very different context, right? Like, they, yeah. they weren't witnesses at the time. Um, and so there's just so many layers to it. And it's hard for me now. I think for many women who experience abuse, there's often a lot of guilt around the circumstances with which you became connected with this person, even outside of the witness context, right? Like there's a lot of like, wow, how come I didn't see that this was going to happen? Or how come I fell in love with someone like this? And there's, there's a lot of that already. So when you layer on like the witness context, which is oh, I was supposed to have been able to identify whether this was a spiritually mature man who this man was only a few years older than me. So we're talking about like, now I think about like a guy in their young 20s, like who's spiritually mature (laughs) at that age, even if you're like a perfectly great functioning, healthy human, right? Um, And so, yeah, 
there's a lot to that. And there's a lot to the history of why marriage is so important within the organization as well. So obviously you had to have these like, um, like study sessions together once, once um, it was sort of, yeah, they're like, okay, this is, this is happening. Um, so before that, did you ever have, have conversations with elders or your parents or anything where it was like, oh, this is, you know, this is what you're looking out for or whatever, or like, this is how you know if someone's spiritually mature, even though that that's a ridiculous thing to have to do. Was there like yeah. some strange checklist you were meant to be looking for? <laughs> No, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a checklist that I don't remember, but there's a lot. There are specific books specifically for like teenagers or young people. The one that was popular when I was growing up was called Young People Ask. And it covered all of the sort of things that happen. Like it had a chapter about like what happens when you go through puberty and your body changes and hormones. And it, you know, gave a lot of um, clear directives around how you were supposed to monitor that. Um, and it talked about what to look for in a spiritual mate, for sure. A lot of those stipulations have to do with um, activity within the congregation. Witnesses are an extremely performative religion, right? Like, mm. it's not just showing up on Sundays. There's all these other activities. So you'd look for, do they give answers during the congregation meetings and the question period? Do they do things, if they're a boy, you're allowed to do these little activities like hold the microphones in the kingdom hall or adjust the microphones for speakers? Um, do they volunteer to help out or when the kingdom hall has to be cleaned or there's a construction project or there's an older person who needs help or something like that? Like ostensibly all positive things that show someone is part of the community. Um, but these are some of the things that you would like look out for as markers. Of course, none of these things have to do with maybe how they view women or their, let's say, psychological health or perhaps even their own past story. Those kinds of things aren't spoken about because elders really aren't equipped to deal with that. What they can deal with is what the Bible says, what the books they've been given to interpret the Bible and how to kind of monitor activities in the kingdom hall, what to write down on paper. So it's it's kind of a very surface level thing. Like abusers and narcissists are notoriously great at fulfilling all of those requirements and appearing to be really charismatic, popular, loving people. Right. Mm. So I don't think that mm. those would have been helpful to me. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I remember the young people last book. I think um, that was, I was a bit older when that came out. There was a book before then, cause I'm very old. The, the red book, um, that was their first sort of proper foray into um, that age bracket. And so, yeah, all the same stuff. Yeah, all, all there. I remember going through that. Um, but, yeah, it put such a lot of emphasis on that. Um, I was very anxious as a young man um, around relationships and things like that because of, of all this pressure and what you could and couldn't do. So, yeah, it was um, not a good time. Um, for me and it doesn't sound like it was a great time for you Carmel um so you um you you find yourself you get married obviously um Jehovah's Witnesses have quite a small pool of people to choose from um I I don't know whether that's the case with you but generally you know you, you have the people in your congregation or friends 
uh, friends sort of thing. But it's it is quite a small pool because we can't we couldn't get married to anybody that wasn't a Jehovah's Witness. So right. you 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 find yourself in in a marriage, and um, how long does that go before you start to to notice problems? Mm-hmm. Um, when I look back now, of course, I noticed problems before the marriage. But at the time, the first time I experienced was very, very, like, very quickly after the actual wedding. So we're talking about days was the first time I experienced physical violence. Um, before the marriage, I didn't experience that. But now I can look back and see behavioral patterns that now would be a flag to me. Um, so it was very, very soon after. Um, and I didn't tell anybody not even my family or anyone for about a year and a half. I just was in shock and tried to deal with it myself. And it just happened in secret for a very long time. Um, So quickly, quickly escalated. And then it was about a year and a half that I did later that I did what is recommended because it's also important. I think that people know that witnesses do write about domestic violence in their publications quite a lot. Um, It's written I don't know quite a lot, but it's written about. Um, there are many articles about it. And the recommended thing that a Christian wife should do is to, you know, bring this forward to the elders. And so eventually I did um, reach out to the elders for help. I, I told my mother about it probably just before. And um, she, of course, counseled me that that was the right way to go because that is sort of what you do. So what happens then? So you you go to the elders and you talk about this in your film, actually. Um, so do you want to let our our listeners know what how that's handled within these um, this this body of elders? Yeah, I think it's good to like kind of set the scene of how elders operate mm. in the congregation. Um, many kingdom halls. Um, the one I grew up in was very little. There was no back room. It's called the elders room. But when I was older um, and when I was experiencing this, we were in a larger one and there was always a smaller back room that they referred to as the elder room. So anytime someone was brought in to be before the elders, whether they were in trouble or seeking counsel, you kind of, it's this very like uh, separated, isolated space. Um, elders are only men can be elders. So no matter who you meet with, it's, you know, in my case, a young, terrified, emotionally ruined woman, just bawling my eyes out saying, I don't understand what's happening. I need help. I feel afraid all the time. I'm being hurt, blah, 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 you know, and there's always at least two elders, if not three. So it's, you're sitting in this formal space, um, by yourself and, the counsel from the elders, this then extended for several years. So from the first time that it came out as an issue, um, the elders never doubted that the violence was happening, even though I never experienced the type of violence where it was visible to others, you know, such as like visible physical mm. bruises. A lot of the violence that happened was either in places that you can't see or was around me. So like physical objects or like in my vicinity and things like that. Um, but they never doubted it partially because they knew the family history of this family and it didn't surprise anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, and then became a very confusing period of my life because what happens next is they want to then counsel my, um, Kurt, my husband at the time. And so they have separate meetings with him and separate meetings with me. And what happens is the 
the uh, my husband at the time would come home and say, well, I just met with the elders and they said, you need to be more submissive. You're unlovable and you're, you're fiercely independent was one of the um, terms that was used for me. Um, you're asking too many questions. And then elders would tell me, you need to calm down. You can't provoke him. You need to support him so that he can become more spiritual and stop the violence. So for a very long time, the message was like, hold, you know, calm down, be more submissive. He will come around. And one of the big things I talk about in my film is just that alone is extremely dangerous advice to give to someone experiencing violence. There's so many studies now that they have figured out the sort of map of violence and sort of how it often escalates and sort of what happens and when it's most dangerous usually for women and maybe her children. And the very concept of asking someone to stay is one of the things that I kind of burns me up the most sort of like in my stomach, you know? Mm. Um, But to be honest, the elders have no other option to really tell you because in the Bible, which they interpret literally around laws of divorce, it says that the only biblical reason for a divorce is adultery, which means basically you sleep with someone else. Abuse is not a biblical reason for a divorce. So they, the elders cannot say to me, wow, that's so terrible. You should get divorced immediately, right? Mm-hmm. Or they can't say, absolutely, you should leave. They can't. That is not mm. what the Bible says. And they supposedly base all of their counsel on that. So it becomes super complicated, um, especially because it's not as if I was in this rational form that I'm appearing today. I was sure. mostly extremely emotionally confused and had been for several years sort of like torn down as a human, right? So I had no idea what was going on. I just knew I need help. And these were the people I was raised my entire life to believe that that's where you get help. You're really discouraged from getting outside support, like from psychologists and things like that. Eventually I did actually defy that. And we went to a psychologist who pulled me aside and said, I've seen these relationships many times and I think you're in danger and you should get help, which of course just confused me even more because I was like, I couldn't explain why I couldn't do that. Mm. So it ended up being about four and a half years before I left for good. And that was all with the support of a nonprofit women's center that I ended up going to myself in secret, getting a legal advocate to help me do a legal divorce And even then, I still believed that I was not biblically divorced from my husband, but I was, for my safety, I no longer was married to him legally. Yeah, so it's worth just um, um, saying I want to bring you in here, um, but I just think it's worth emphasizing that. So there's often situations in um, Kingdom Halls, um, certainly I saw this, where one partner is in danger or for whatever reason they've separated, but she, and it was normally a she, but not always, wouldn't be able to uh, marry again. So that so you're divorced in the eyes of the law, but should you find somebody and start um, going out with them or even get married, then that would be considered um, fornication on your part. So you would then be hurled before a judicial committee and probably some merrily disfellowships really because how can you be repentant for that so um you you find women particularly 
kind of trapped in this lonely life, sometimes with children as well, and unable to uh, find another partner. Just um, it, it's it's absolutely heartbreaking, really. It's a really important nuance to bring out because that's one of the things I've had many conversations with my family and other witnesses around this when they say, but wait, you can get divorced. Like no one can tell you, you can't leave. Mm. And that is, that is true. You can get a legal, they, you know, a secular divorce is what they call it. But that is the rule that you then until one of the former partners (laughs) has commits some form of fornication connects with someone else, you are still married, which means you cannot move on. And you cannot have a new relationship. I was 24, 25 at the time when I made that decision. And I remember the weight of that because I, I believed that I was going to follow that rule. I was going to get divorced because I had to, it was, Mm -hmm. I couldn't live like that. I was truly endangered, but I was like, well, I guess that's it for me as a 24, (laughs) 25 year old, right. Who had barely started life. And that was part of the huge heartache and grief of the ultimate, like, what I considered a big personal failure at the time of my marriage, of my choice I had made for who to marry. And also I felt deeply that I had disappointed God by making that decision. Although I felt compelled to, I was like, you know, what's interesting about the film I just made is that at the time when I was like 24, I wrote a letter to the headquarters of the Jehovah's Witnesses because I was searching deeply for a different answer. I didn't want to get divorced. So at the time, all of the witness publications were on a CD-ROM. This is really aging myself when I say this. (laughs) Um, But, and you could look up everything. It was like, you know, very searchable. So I looked up everything from the history of the publications and I could not find any article that matched my situation, that gave me permission to leave for my own safety everything was just the same old thing. And so I wrote them a letter explaining and I asked them like, write me back. There must be something like, I don't want to do this. And I never received a response. And so I eventually did what I had to do. And in my film, I feel it's so it was kind of this interesting full circle experience to be writing letters again to the leadership of the organization. Once again, sort of screaming out into the void, but from Mm -hmm. a very different position you know, in a very different message, which was very healing on its own. Thank you for listening to Court Hackers, an indie podcast. That means we're not part of a big media organization with huge advertising budgets and massive reach. So just by listening to this, you're supporting the little guy. The hardest thing for us is not content. We love recording episodes and talking to amazing and interesting people. Now, by far the hardest thing is getting in front of the potential millions of listeners out there with millions of podcasts scrambling for attention. And here's where you can help. Simply by telling people about the podcast. Just telling somebody about it can really help. You can share an episode on social media or private messaging using your app. Or on some apps, you can leave a rating. Better still, say a few words. So please help us get cult hackers in front of more people. And now back to the podcast. When you're talking about uh, how, you know, women might make this choice, this very, very difficult choice to have a um, secular divorce, but then, you know, yeah, a a game of like who blinks first in terms of who's going to, you know, need connection first um, (laughs) sort of ensues. Um, And the fact that, you know, if it's this person that's been, 
you know, probably very likely emotionally neglected for a long time, needs connection, finds that first, that they're the one that will, you know, face the extreme punishment and, you know, abuse of being shunned, basically. Um, That's just, yeah, really painful and awful to hear, I suppose. And then my first thought was, why after all this happens, does the guy just get to keep coming to the meetings? Presumably, yes. Are you both now at the same hall? Like, you know, what is the dynamic of that? Are you just in this weird world this whole time now? Yeah, waiting to see what happens next. (laughs) Yeah, that's such a good question. So my case is a little bit unique in that I left the country in order to get divorced safely. Um, My parents were living back in Canada. And so um, I don't tell this story in the film because it's kind of a whole other story. But through this very strange tragedy, um, I had left and gone back three times to my husband at the time. Most of the first two times were like something terrible happened. I had to immediately leave for my own safety. Like it was running away for my safety. The third time was like I was trying to separate so that I could Um, You can get a separation. That's a thing that you can do within the witness world. And so I tried to do a, I didn't do it on paper, but I left for a while and lived somewhere else to just try and get my head right. And then that proceeded in me recommitting. Um, A lot of promises were made as is so common in these types of challenging relationships. But um, eventually I realized that this was like going to be my life forever. And I got into a very deep depression um, at the end of my time in my marriage, um, like, like suicidal ideation, depression, because there seemed to be no way out. And I was just going through motions. And my parents who I'd been communicating with more at that point knew that things were not good. Mm-hmm. And one day I got a phone call, I was driving and my dad says, Hey, are you like, are you home? You need to sit down. And I was like, I'm driving. He's like, pull over. I'm like, mm-hmm. Okay. And he said, so listen, I have cancer and they told me I have three weeks to live and I want you to come home and help your mom take care of me. And I, to this day, I'm like so strangely grateful for that horrible, tragic call because I knew that my dad knew me and he knew that I needed some reason that was much larger than myself to get out of the situation where I was stuck. And I think he knew without saying it that I would Mm. leave if Mm. that larger sort of mission was given to me. And so Mm. me being able to leave very suddenly because my dad had just suddenly gotten this like extremely short prognosis. So I left and it was by leaving and having this other reason to kind of live and purpose that I had to do. I was then able to finally make the decision to file the actual paperwork and do the divorce from a safe place. I, I truly don't think I could have done it if I was still in the ge- geographic location because yes, he did continue going to meetings. He did not receive any form of counsel or punishment um, to this day. As far as I know, he's still there. I have family who still live in that area. For years, I would go back to visit family and be in terror the whole time. And I had all these ways of navigating, never being alone in that town, never going down certain streets, never going to certain places, you know? So in some ways, although it was tragic that my dad did pass away shortly after that, it, it saved my life in this very strange way. Um, 
And so I think there's so much privilege embedded in what happened to me in that I could fly away. You know, my parents could send me an airplane ticket that day. I could just abandon a life because I didn't have children. I could, you know, be supported by my parents for the first year because they didn't have much, but they had enough to help me. Right. And so I think of that experience as just so layered with so many feelings, obviously. And yet, despite the tragedy of it, somehow a lot of gratitude comes out of that. And um, I continued to be a witness for about a year after that, all while my dad was sick, partially because, honestly, it would have been much harder not to be during that time of his life and the community being involved. And then it was afterwards that I kind of went back out on my own and started over. So, yeah, there's Mm. (laughs) like everything is not a simple story. And it's about more than just the religion, although I do find the religion and the belief system were defining factors in the timing and how I dealt with the situation. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in, in the, your film, you um, we see you writing a letter. Uh, and in fact, you write lots of letters. Um, uh, so tell us a bit about, first of all, your decision to disassociate formally um, and then the other letters that you write. Yeah. Um, So I left, I stopped being an active witness about 15 years ago, but I'm one of those people who was able to just disappear from it. So I wasn't disfellowshipped and I didn't actively disassociate myself. For those who don't know, there are kind of two ways to leave the religion. If you are a baptized witness, I was baptized when I was like 13 years old. When you get baptized, you're dedicating your life to God. You're considered a witness forever then. Like there's really no way out. Yeah. Unless you do something wrong and get disfellowshipped, or you can disassociate yourself, which is writing a formal letter to the organization saying, I'm no longer one of Jehovah's Witnesses, at which point you're typically viewed very similar to someone who is disfellowshipped. Like, not, you know, it can vary a bit, but more or less. I never did any of that. I was, you know, first of all, living a post-traumatic life of like unbelievable proportions. I've basically spent the last 15 years learning how to live as a human being again. Um, So I just disappeared kind of. And only recently has, and I also never told anyone in my new life that I was a witness. Most of them didn't know I had been married. Most of them didn't know I had been abused. Most of them didn't know I'd been abused, uh, a divorce. And just eventually that started to wear on me, especially because a big part of how I rebuilt my life was entering into life as a performing songwriter, which by the way, I'd been writing songs since I was seven years old. And the idea of having a professional career as a musician is impossible as a witness. Mm. I remember literally having conversations with my parents being like, well, if I did this, then I could tour and I could still go to meetings in every city, like Mm -hmm. insanely impossible things. Um, and so it just began to wear and I became less and less able to show up in my own life and to heal from trauma with this giant sort of black box secret, even from your closest (laughs) friends. And so it occurred to me that it was time to officially do something about this. And the natural thing for a witness kid to do is to disassociate yourself. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to officially disassociate myself not for myself, but because now I've learned how damaging the system is. And I, I need the world to know, like, I need to say something about this. And so I decided I was going to write a letter to the organization that was half 
my a bit of my story and me disassociating. And the other half was like, hey, um, you need to make serious changes to your policies in order to make this safer for people and for this not to happen to someone else. Then I was like, well, what's one letter going to do? Like, it'll make me feel good, I guess. But like, they're probably not going to respond just like they didn't respond 15 years ago. And I wrote a letter asking for their them to respond. And so I was like, well, you know, the people who really need to read this letter are the people who are like the elders who were involved in my case, in my congregation. And if I can reach enough of them, and if one of them opens this letter, even one, if they all go in the trash, whatever, you know, but if one of them opens it, and I know that this is happening to other women, and I know multiple elders have experienced being part of these. And if it just makes them think a tiny bit differently, you know, like it will have done something. And then, you know, that was my impetus to write a thousand letters instead of one. And I wish I could have written 10,000 letters, a million letters. Um, That's not something I could do, mostly because I actually had to pay for all those stamps. Um, But the idea then became symbolic, right? Like Mm. it really doesn't have to do with one letter or a thousand letters. It has to do with how do we tell the story? How do we help the world know that a, this type of misogynistic and biased sexist policy exists right now everywhere in Jehovah's Witness organizations. It also exists in a ton of other fundamentalist Christian religions way more commonly than we know. I've met now so many other women since making this film that have had very similar experiences, not witnesses. And so not only do I feel like a responsibility to tell that story and to maybe help someone else, because now I'm like articulate enough to tell it and safe enough to tell it, but also like the political context of the world that we're living in, especially if you look at American politics, but not only There's so many things happening that are rooted in the exact same Christian ideas and scriptures that I literally bore on my physical body, right? So it just felt like time. And Mm. it also feels like a beginning, which is interesting. I didn't know when I started this process that I kind of thought I would do it and be done. But actually what it's done has sort of like opened up so much for potential work and like to connect with folks like you, which is incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's it's wonderful to talk to you. And um, I will say um, that our listeners can read that letter um, because it's on your website. So um, again, there'll be a link on the show notes. But um, I mean, it is genuinely good advice you're giving the organization. And um, I'm sure they won't listen to it. Um, but it, what I do like about it is it is saying, look, there are some solutions to this. Um, these are things you can do you know, pretty quickly, really. I won't read them all, but you're talking about dismantling the gender-based hierarchy. So that's a really important one that I I know you feel very strongly about. Um, we've, we've touched on it today. What, what do you think Jehovah's Witnesses would look like if they got rid of that tomorrow? Yeah. You know, I'm so glad you're asking me this question because it was really important to me in the film and in any time I talk about this, to know that like, I'm actually not anti-religious and I'm also surprisingly not anti-Jehovah's Witness in many ways. I think that that community serves many people in ways that they need it. There are, mm-hmm. there are many people who get away with 
having a good experience there, including like my own mother and siblings. So it's very, I try to be very empathetic for people who it's working for. But there is no reason in 2023 to have a any organization that does not have gender equity. And it's not just men and women, really. It's all the things that we know about gender now. Why? And what harm would it do if you had women able to be elders? Would it solve every problem? No, but I can tell you that if there was a woman in that room when I was a young person going and try and talking about what was happening to me, very intimate, scary, vulnerable things, it would have changed my experience. Even if that woman upheld the same policies, it would still have changed my experience. Mm. And if I had seen as a little kid, a woman standing up on the podium, giving instruction and speaking That also would have changed how I viewed male authority when I ended up in a gender-based violence scenario. So I think that there's literally no reason that organization could not remove that one rule. In fact, the last statistics I saw, there's more women in the organization than men. And to be honest, they could probably use the help. Like, like I don't, what is the reason, right? And it would just change the optics for all I think of my little niece who is being raised as a Jehovah's Witness, the little kids who are coming up, like how terrible is it that they only see men on the raised platform? Um, It's just unsafe. And the, the gender hierarchy then leads to all these other policies that harm many more people than women. We know child abuse occurs. We know what happens to folks who are LGBTQ, IA, like there's just no space for people to be themselves. And if you're going to offer a community where people can find spiritual answers and just community, why not try and reduce harm? You know, will it happen? I don't know, but I don't, there's no argument for it not to. I wanted to engage with that question you just asked, you know, what, what is the reason? uh, Why can't they? So the answer would be from, from them would be that this biblical, um, tradition of headship or this ruling from God that um, there is a, uh, a headship arrangement um, and it's kind of repeated by the Apostle Paul. What? So I've got some thoughts on that, but I'm interested in how you would counter that. Yeah, I mean, the most basic response I get when I talk about this with witness folks is that, well, listen, This is what the Bible says. This is how the first century Christian congregation was set up. And this is a loving provision from God. That is sort of, that's the party line, shall we say. Um, And it's very hard to argue with someone who believes that a mandate has come from God, right? Mm. Because the, um, the answer is always, well, we know the world has changed and modernized. We know that women's rights has come a long way in the last 40 years. Um, but this is something bigger than us. And this is coming from a theocratic authority. And the reasons for it are probably even beyond our understanding. And it's designed to take care of the family, to take care of women and people who you know are abusive. Well, they're just wrong. And it's a problem with some men. One of the most difficult things that I hear is that this is not the, this just happened to you, right? And so often what happens when you try and have this larger conversation about organizational change, it gets redirected to like a single, this is, this only happens to you. 
one of the most important experiences of making this film and starting to talk on Instagram about this has been the amount of other women, witness women who have come set, come forward and been like, yeah, this happened to me. This happened to my mother. This happened to my sister. So there is no counter other than to say, who is it serving? And how is it? Is it harming people? And if it's harming at all, why are we not doing something to fix that? Because we now know enough. We know enough from the world, from other organizations that have had cycles of abuse, um, that anytime there is an all-male leadership, there is usually other problems that follow. Because just any kind of concentrated power in one group is going to harm someone else. And so it's very hard to have this conversation. I mean, I've had like, I can't count how many tearful, difficult conversations I've had. My own mother like is very supportive and knows what happened to me. An incredibly intelligent, wonderful person Mm -hmm. who says, to be honest, I don't want to be an elder. This system works for me. Yeah. Mm Like, how do I argue with that? You know, yeah. which is which is fine, and and you know, uh, I think no one would say that uh, um, all women should be elders any any more like um, all men are elders. You know, it's um, it wouldn't be for everyone, but yeah, I mean, my my argument um, is that the structures of the organisation are are actually not really like the first century Christian um, congregation. They didn't really have a governing body, although they'll they'll try and tell you they did. So the, the structures are different. And actually, they, they have an organization that has been structured um, in a modern day setting and that actually follows fairly commercial principles. Um, so you can call um, people what you like, really. And um, if, if they wanted to, I think they could find... Yeah some biblical verse somewhere um to uh, to justify this this action that that would be my um argument personally i think that's like a very good way of stating it I, you know friends of mine that i talk to about this who don't come from a witness background or any religious background just always say like very quickly they're like well obviously it's just about power and control yeah and i mean yes i think from my like m- many you know feminist studies and many like books I've read, I can absolutely understand how it all fits into the bigger picture. And I, I, you know, one of the impetus that I had for making this film, which by the way, I had like very, I was terrified to do. um, And I thought, who cares about my little weird story, right? But I started thinking about how in my mind, patriarchal systems, which we know are just, you know, kind of govern the world as we know it, are like this, they're not this big, solid state thing. They are made of many tiny rocks. It is a huge mountain made of many tiny little stones. And I thought, you would just jiggle one little stone and you start to pull that out. And and someone over there with their other experience, they crack down at one of the other ones. And like, this is how we dismantle these systems over time. Like, these systems were built over time, piece by piece, reinforced, repatched up and like you can't make giant change out of one giant action you make it out of a million little actions and I think that is sort of my goal is to be very realistic about what I'm capable of accomplishing but certainly I'm not going to be quiet about it anymore and I think one of the heartbreaks that I deal with a lot is the people who know me and love me and respect me who are witnesses it feels like a personal betrayal almost when they 
are, they say, you know what, I'm okay with that system. And I just think how for the good of humanity in general, are you okay with that system, right? And so that's something that I kind of contend with my own almost self-righteous, to use a witness term, self-righteous zeal around this issue, um, which definitely feeds into all the work that I do and um, and hopefully keeps me going because it's not easy to do this stuff. Mm. Hopefully keeps me centered on like why I'm taking time to share this story that I still feel a lot of shame and weirdness about, but that I think that maybe it will shock some people and maybe it will help some other people feel validated and not alone. And if nothing else, we at least gave a good kick at the little patriarchal stone that I experienced personally, you know? I I suppose my thought in terms of, you know, just sort of piling on with what you're saying in sense of if they wanted to, they could, you know, it's um, because there is, there is evidence of them changing things because they wanted to and they could. Mm. So, you know, like yeah. recent times with no longer having to count your time or the end's coming. No, it's not actually um, later. Um, here's reasoning as to why, you know, they can pull things out if they want to and they can change things if they want to. Um, and it, like you say, it is not surprising to me that a group of a group of people in power do not want to relinquish some of that power, you know, because, you know, there'll be a whole question of, you know, if you start allowing it, do you, you know, there'll be questions around how, how do we do that? Do we remove some of the men? Is there going to be massive kickback as you do that? Mm. Probably. Um, Cause as I think dad, you've mentioned before, you know, in a, in a, in a system where you're not allowed to pursue career and like climb certain goals, this is the thing that men get to pursue. And, you know, there'll be this, I can imagine a massive kickback of you taking our thing away from us, <laughs> you know. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think people don't like giving back power once they've had it um, or even sharing, you know. But, you know, yeah. let's be adults, let's share. <laughs> I totally agree with that. I think um, I, I, I think it would be really interesting. Um, they could make small changes. Uh, one of the things that came out of the Australian Royal Commission, I don't know whether you followed that, um, Carmel, but um, um, the judge there was actually really reasonable. You know, he was saying, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be a good idea to have um, women um, taking part in some of these cases? Um, and especially when young women were involved um, yeah. with the, the victims of this abuse, um, but they just couldn't um, couldn't bring themselves to say that. But it, that those sorts of things would, I think, be an easy, very easy first step. Um, it yeah. wouldn't need to be teaching from the platform, um, but they could do things like that very easily. I, I mean, I think that's the part that is challenging for folks who are outside of the world, mm. of the witness world now, is that we can see this as a structure that's just a bunch of, you know, there's eight men who run this organization. That's how yeah. it works. But if you're in, so you're like those eight men could make a decision, write a letter, tell the elders, and it would change because they, like you yeah. say, Celine, they've made lots of policy changes since I was a kid, um, and pretty big ones, like you say, not counting ministry hours is like crazy to me, um, as someone who used to be a regular <laughs> pioneer and put in my oh, yeah. ninety or seventy hours. Yeah, but like that is that's easy for us to say when we realize that it's just people, and in every other space in our life at you know, the job I work at or any other kind of organization I belong to, 
these types of gender inequities would not be allowed. It's only allowed in religious spaces. And one of the bigger question is like, why do we allow that? Like every most, you know, the country I li- live in has laws against that in every other space. Yeah. What would happen if we even zoomed out beyond the witnesses and said like, why are we allowing yeah. this to go on? Obviously that opens up super complicated questions, but we know that Christianity is not the only place where the gender hierarchy exists. And we know that it's extremely damaging in many different religions. I mean, that's one of the questions in my head is like, how the heck do we let this go on? Right. And yeah. And worse than that is that we support these organizations with tax breaks. Yeah. At the same time. So not only, um, so I'm sure it's the same in Canada or something similar, but we have in the UK, uh, protected characteristics um, uh, on on which you cannot on the base of which you cannot discriminate. So yeah. those include gender, um, race, um, disability, sexuality. sexuality. Absolutely, all these things um, that religions routinely discriminate people um, yeah. on the basis of. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, um, it it's comes terrible. down to like you know, how then can we maybe, or I, I should talk, speak just for myself. It's like, how can I then make some form of change? And like, that's sort of what my mission is right now. Mm. By hopefully having folks watch the film and engage with me is like, there's, there is, there is a lot we can do by telling story, telling our stories. I think it can sound a little bit like woo to say that, but I think I've experienced it myself. Like, I did not actually research or know much about the um, many things that I know now until after I made my film. I hadn't read anybody's books about their experience as a witness. I actually hadn't even um, known much about the child abuse scandal. All of these things happened after I told my story. And the connection and validation I felt by reading those folks' books and watching other people's films has literally changed my life. So if I can like do a little bit of that for someone as well, by telling the specific niche story that I have, then like, to me, that's sort of as much as I can ask. And I kind of let go of the outcomes of the rest. And I keep thinking, how can I be creative and getting this story out there? Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, you know, we feel like we're doing something similar with the podcast and, um, you know, you, 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 you can't take all of it on your own shoulders, but you can do a little bit and something. And um, it's it's an honor to be able to do that, isn't it? Yeah, like, thank you for what the two of you do. I think it's especially so cool to have this perspective of you together. And mm. I think, Celine, you're kind of a testament for like what can happen when folks leave these kind of high control religions and how it can heal the next generation. So it's been like a really beautiful experience talking to both of you today. Awesome. Thank well, you. Thank you so much for for coming onto the show, Carmel. Again, people need to watch your short film. It's it's about is it 10, 12 minutes? Yeah, um, it's something like that. So it's a very easy watch and um, it's very inspiring. Thank you very much for for coming on and sharing your story with us today, Carmel. Michael. Thank you so much, and thanks to everyone who's listening. <laughs>